This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the prize-winning historian Andrew O'Shaughnessy about his new and very fine book, The Illimitable Freedom of the Human Mind, Thomas Jefferson's Idea of a University. The book, Andrew, is timely because you touch on the paradox at the heart of the American experiment with the volatile element of freedom. It's being rooted in the long-abiding dependence on slavery. If you have your book in front of you, maybe you can begin with Jefferson's last word shortly before his death in 1826 on the cause of liberty and the meaning of the 4th of July. Lewis, thank you very much for the privilege of inviting me. Uh, This letter, which I'm about to read, was written in the context of... uh, an invitation to go to Washington, D.C. for the 50th celebration of the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson was still ill, and these were really his last lucid letter in which he wrote, May it be to the world what I believe it will be, to some parts sooner, to others later, but finally to all. The signal of arousing men to burst the chains under which monkish ignorance and superstition had persuaded them to bind themselves and to assume the blessings and security of self-government. That form which we have substituted restores the free right to the unbounded exercise of reason and freedom of opinion. All eyes are opened or opening to the rights of man. The general spread of the light of science has already laid open to every view the palpable truth that the mass of mankind has not been born with saddles on their back, nor a favoured few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. That's a magnificent paragraph. But how do we square it with the inconvenient fact that Jefferson himself was the owner of 607 slaves. Well, this has been the dilemma and uh, largely responsible for our going from putting Jefferson on a pedestal and being entirely celebratory to now being really very negative and even removing statues of Jefferson and removing his name from schools. And it is this question of his... uh, involvement in slavery, and also his racial views. I I would say from the outset that it isn't entirely a contradiction. As Edmund Burke explained at the time, it was the slave owners who were often the most powerful champions of liberty because they understood better than anyone what tyranny was about uh, and the distinction between freedom and slavery to which they were especially sensitive. I think the way we have to deal with it as a nation, and we're all struggling with this, and Jefferson, of course, was just a microcosm of America, and this was the issue nationally, 
is that we have to acknowledge an important corrective. Uh, we'll never go back to a completely celebratory view. This has to be acknowledged. It was a criticism of the time. It's not just retrospective. There were people criticizing slavery and even questioning Jefferson's views on uh, race. But against that, you also have to consider and ask the question, what did these people, and in this case, Jefferson, leave that is a positive legacy that continues to be very beneficial? And we can easily forget that 1619 was the date of the first enslaved people in Virginia, but it was also the date of the first assembly in Virginia. We do not have slavery today, but we have a democracy that has evolved from that early, very elitist system uh, of elections in which these colonial assemblies were what Hannah Arendt called the nursery of future statesmen of the post-revolutionary period. And in Jefferson's case, we can talk about various uh, enormous legacies, uh, not least his views on freedom of religion and uh, the separation of church and state. And we can forget that in the 19th century, this made Jefferson very unpopular as America became more and more evangelical. Uh, This is not the first period in which people have questioned Jefferson but it represents a major contribution because we also forget and take for granted religious freedom today. But of course, throughout history, there have been genocides committed in the name of religion, sometimes simply between different denominations, not even different religions. These questions, again, are are running around loose 24-7 in our news media. Uh, it seems to me the argument is that Jefferson's the way out of slavery, the way out of, of the on the other side of the peculiar institution is the freedom of the mind, which is what he's about. And he at least points that way in, in, in that direction. I mean, you, you, you talk about his what you call the feast of reason. Talk about Jefferson thought that the University of Virginia was one of the three major achievements of his life, the Declaration of Independence being one of the others, and and I think the notes on the state of Virginia. But talk about his plans, hopes, intentions, involvement with setting up the University of Virginia. In what year does he start to do this? So Jefferson understood that he and his generation would one day be vilified, as he put it, just like we think of our witch-burning ancestors. And indeed, uh, he welcomed the fact. In establishing the university, he felt he was giving people the tools, another generation to think for themselves, to use reason as their guide, to base decisions on empirical evidence, in order to improve their societies and to make progress. And as as one and very typical of the Enlightenment, he believed constantly in progress and a better future. And he argued that each living generation should not be held back by the past, 
what he called the dead hand of the past that they needed to put aside tradition and to think for themselves and to make progress. And this was true of uh, this was a major desire of his and why he founded the university. As you rightly say, he wanted it listed as one of his three greatest achievements on his tombstone. The Declaration of Independence represented political freedom. The Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom represented religious freedom. And he saw political freedom and religious freedom as preconditions for the greatest of all freedoms, which was intellectual uh, freedom, and that the university would essentially, was only the apex, really, of his much wider vision for education, which would have also included a public school system. Indeed, he always argued that the schools were more important than the university, because he felt that uh, educating the citizenry was necessary to keep government accountable. They needed to be able to question and to use their vote based on uh, intelligent decisions. And his idea of public education, for the reasons that you just gave, as well as his idea of a university, are the ones that are still in place, are they not? I mean, I mean, those ideas that were revolutionary and revolu- and Jefferson's own lifetime are today commonplace. I mean, are not those the the uh, objectives of our own education system today? They are indeed. And I think one of the problems with someone like Jefferson and the founders generally is that we're apt to take these ideas so much for granted that we forget how novel they were at the time. Uh, and you think of concepts like government by consent. And as part of the current negativity, uh, recent historians have somewhat dismissed Jefferson on public education. They point out that he never got the bill passed. Uh, He introduced a bill in 1779 in Virginia for the general diffusion of knowledge, which would have given every free boy and girl the opportunity to go to school. It was radical at the time, for giving the opportunity to women. Jefferson himself stressed later that it did not exclude free African Americans and that he thought mixed racial schools were better than having separate uh, schools for African Americans, which went against a lot of, of what he said elsewhere on race, but is interesting. And we also forget that this would have been the first public school system in the world. Prussia, Russia, and Austria are ironically some of the most dictatorial countries in the world. Uh, Their uh, monarchs had put out uh, decrees that there should be a public school system, but Prussia was the pioneer, and that wasn't really evolved until the 19th century. The closest was Scotland, Connecticut and Massachusetts, where the Presbyterians and Congregationalists had insisted that everybody be able to read, but it never was a systematic public school system. So what he was suggesting was very novel, and he never gave up on those ideas for the rest of his life. We also need, when we talk about Jefferson, the founders, 
to remember that they were politicians and they were interested in what was feasible, what could actually be achieved now. So Jefferson had a number of conflicting goals and a number of objectives. Uh, he's accused of having sacrificed the public school system for the university and elitist project. In reality, he continued to bring forward bills for a, for a public school system right up to the end of his life. Uh, he never got them passed, partly because he wanted them to be secular schools and he didn't even want the clergy to teach at them. But he, he thought that that was ultimately much more important. Uh, it was the same with his views on slavery. Actually, always insisted that he was opposed to slavery, but politics is the art of the possible. No political party, no national politician in the 1790s and early 19th century was putting forward a platform against slavery. That, that would come much later. There were certainly abolitionists and people who criticized slavery. The one person in Virginia who freed all his slaves in a, an incredibly radical action was Robert Carter. And Carter was one of the leading figures in, in Virginia politics before the revolution. And he acted according to his principles and freed all his enslaved people. Uh, but he was ostracized. He went to live in Annapolis. Uh, Jefferson could never have become governor of Virginia. He could never have been vice president, president, had he really uh, made anti-slavery his platform. As it was, Jefferson was one of the few in the South, especially in the early 19th century, along with his protégés and family members. His grandson pushed an anti-slavery bill in uh, Virginia in the early 1830s. Uh, otherwise, there was really very little an anti-slavery movement in the South, uh, largely because of King Cotton that suddenly gave a new lease of life and uh, economic viability to the system of slavery. All right. Now talk about the last 10 years of his life, his preoccupation with building the University of Virginia. And he chooses the land and talk about his, you know, involvement with you know, how much he did in mean, the architecture and so on. I mean, and he rides every day horseback five miles from Monticello to the university to oversee its construction and coming into being. This was a remarkable achievement of a man between the ages of 73 to 83, during which he not only conceived but founded the University of Virginia. I keep asking historians if they can name any other head of state even in their retirement, who was involved so intimately in the creation of a university. And I'm talking about head of state in world history. Monarchs, leaders have often acted as patrons of institutions. Frederick the Great took a great interest in uh, the University of Berlin. But I can think of nothing comparable. He was actually wanting to have a top university in Virginia from the time of the American Revolution. And he initially tried to reform the College of William and Mary, but he uh, gave up on just reforming because he felt it was too 
dominated by Episcopalians. He was not happy with the state of the college. And he first suggested a University of Virginia, a completely new institution, uh, significantly to Joseph Priestley in 1800. But it wasn't until his retirement that he was really able to take this up in earnest. And as you say, he was involved in every aspect. As the son of a surveyor, he physically surveyed the land, admittedly with the help of enslaved, very likely enslaved laborers. As a former lawyer, he drafted all the bills to go before the legislature. As a self-trained architect, he designed the buildings and he certainly consulted, and he did this with everything. He consulted with Benjamin Latrobe and worked with Latrobe, who's a professional architect. But the basic concept uh, was his. And Jefferson's gift was one of synthesizing. He got his ideas from elsewhere. He was not a Newton or an Einstein, but he took ideas from elsewhere. But he blended them in original ways, even in his architecture, he was never merely copying. He adapted and was very creative. You know, as a bibliophile, he wrote down over 6,000 titles of books to go in the library. It instantly became the second largest library in the nation, you know, university library after Harvard. Uh, he invited every student to dine with him in Monticello, of which we have some wonderful accounts of what it was like to be. Uh, some of these students was young as 16. They couldn't spell the word according to the professor's republic, some of them. And yet he would treat them as equals, show them copies of the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, which he thought much better than the final version adapted by Congress. He would tell them anecdotes about George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. Uh, those were seemingly his two favorite subjects uh, among the founders. Uh, what I also realized looking at this is that he's extremely politically skilled. Uh, in a way, that didn't come across to me nearly as much studying his presidency. You know, there, there was a blueprint for the university called the Rockfish Gap Commission, which was supposedly written by 22 commissioners. But thanks to the presence of the Jefferson Papers here at Monticello, we discovered that he had written the Rockfish Gap Commission himself before the commissioners even met at a place called Rockfish Gap in uh, Virginia. Furthermore, he'd written three different drafts of it uh, as he tried to shape it in such a way as to appeal to the uh, commissioners. He, he acted as the secretary of the board, despite having terrible pain in uh, his arm that he'd broken uh, twice by the end, by the latter years of his life, uh, and sometimes having to lie on his stomach in pain. And yet he managed to draft these buildings to draft the uh, minutes. Uh, he would do estimates for every brick in every building. He'd do estimates for the budget, which were always well under the real cost. Again, his political savviness uh, 
And he famously left the most expensive building to the very end. When someone asked him, why didn't you just give us the amount that it was going to cost at the beginning uh, for all of the buildings, he replied, uh, you cannot stuff more than one hot potato down a man's mouth at a time. <laughs> he has a sense of humor and a sense of irony. Yes. And the the range of his interest is, is enormous. I mean, he's a musician. He's a horseman. He's skilled in drawing, astronomy, natural philosopher. Talk about his keeping records and diaries of all kinds. This is uh, remarkable. You know, I, I've been, for the last 19 years, overseeing the International Center for Jefferson Studies. Uh, and uh, it is always amazing to me what new information that I learn. Uh, to give you one esoteric example, Jefferson was the first man to write down and describe what it was like to tune a banjo. And he would have only seen a banjo very likely among the enslaved population, but he took that uh, interest. Um, you know, he was familiar with six languages. Uh, and he famously did his own uh, cut and paste job with the Bible, putting, but using both English, uh, Latin, and Greek, and putting them side by side. Uh, he loved reading the classics um, in later life. Uh, we have people researching his filing system. He could put his fingers on a file in about one minute, and the furniture was all designed to be this elaborate filing system. It often rotated. Uh, there were special drawers. Uh, he uh, often uh, put documents according to uh, size, uh, but visitors were amazed by how quickly he was able to retrieve a particular uh, document. And as you quite rightly say, he was a great collector of information. And that was key to him. If you read his one book, Notes on the State of Virginia, it's got some marvelous passages. And Jefferson's gift ultimately was as a rhetorician and his gift of language and persuasion is vital. At times, that book can be quite sterile because it's a collection of facts, but that wouldn't have been seen as sterile at the time. That was, uh, to him, essential that you have the information on which to base arguments. Um, and, and he collected all the material he could about the history of Virginia, even collecting the newspapers. Uh, we are very fortunate that he helped preserve the archives of the original English Virginia company that had planted Jamestown. Uh, he, measured, he measured the weather twice a day when he got up in the morning, uh, when he went to bed at night. He was constantly recording, measuring I, uh, the the example I use in the book, really, to show his intellectual interests and really the level of his curiosity and in many ways the fact that he was a teacher himself. He did take on students. He taught people in the community. In the, in, this is someone who would have loved to have been a professor uh, in a time when there really wasn't a 
an academic profession, but he, uh, he was spending much of his time collecting information uh, that could be uh, useful. And that, that's a term they used a lot generally in the Enlightenment, uh, useful knowledge. He did not believe, and you notice he used in the opening paragraph that I read out, he used the word monkish. He did not believe in people leading a monkish existence, just being scholars for the sake of being scholars, uh, just uh, entirely uh, focused on their work. Uh, he always wanted to see people doing things for a public and more general benefit uh, to the rest of humanity. But he never loses faith in, in the ideal expressed in the American, in the Declaration of Independence. Talk about the idea of American exceptionalism, Jefferson's notion of a natural aristocracy as opposed to an aristocracy of inherited wealth. Jefferson was always a great optimist, again reflecting the climate of the Enlightenment, but he remained optimistic when the Enlightenment was becoming unfashionable, and when many of his peers and fellow revolutionary leaders were becoming disillusioned. Gordon Wood has been especially strong on this point and did a book comparing John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And his point about John Adams uh, was, and this is true of the Adams family, they, they were very pessimistic. And Adams became more and more disillusioned, having been the sort of bright young radical in the early days of the revolution. Jefferson understood that power would, would and could be abused. He understood that people would make the wrong decisions and elections but he always insisted that ultimately the people, and of course the electorate at this time was still male, uh, still entirely white, so it was limited, uh, but he understood that that too might grow. He always insisted that the people will ultimately get it right. And uh, he is seen as an American exceptionalist. Uh, you could even say a father of American exceptionalism in the national period, because um, Jefferson increasingly believed uh, that America alone was going to carry the torch of liberty and the Republican system. In the early days of the revolution, he'd been, like many revolutionaries, an idealist and believed that they were merely starting a fire that was going to be kindled elsewhere. He was convinced there were going to be revolutions in Europe, that Britain would have a revolution when the French Revolution broke out, he was excited about its potential. He thought that France would become like America. But with the failure of the revolutionary experiments in France and seemingly the reversal of all these early revolutions in Europe after 1815 and the restoration of monarchies after the defeat of Napoleon elsewhere in Europe, he increasingly believed that America had a special mission to carry the torch of liberty, to forward the idea of representative government, that it was a laboratory, about which, of course, de Tocqueville would have agreed. But as de Tocqueville pointed out, 
once other countries adopt the same system, they will essentially be like America, because what we call being American is often not that many of those traits would be true of people in any democracy. And Jefferson would probably have agreed with that. So long term, of course, he hoped that America would not be alone, and that this would be the system that spread throughout the world. But he did believe in the short term, that America was really carrying a massive weight, and that if it failed, you would just have tyrannies around the world. And no one wrote with greater insight and lucidity about the dangers of tyranny and the nature of tyranny than Thomas Jefferson. And he understands at some point, he he talks about slavery as the ultimate tyranny and despotism. And it, I mean, as I read around in your book, I, I I get the feeling that he thinks, like Thomas Paine, that, that we can work our way out of it. But the only way of working out of it is education and the extension of the experiment with freedom. That is absolutely true. I did, in fact, a conference comparing Jefferson and Paine they overlap much more than one might think. And they both believe the Constitution should be rewritten each generation. But in regard to slavery, Jefferson never ceased to emphasize that if this issue was not solved, it would end in a bloodbath. But he was thinking of a different type of bloodbath. He thought it would end in racial war and that those who'd been enslaved would be so resentful that they would resort to violence to gain their freedom, as indeed they had in the Second Republic in the New World, Haiti. His problem was that uh, slavery was becoming more popular. The uh, profits from slavery were becoming greater. And it was part of his thinking in founding a university that if you have a really educated elite in the South, they would be able to solve these problems. He didn't specifically lay down for the next generation. That's what they should be doing. Because, of course, part of his idea was that they shouldn't be held back by the dead hand of the past, that they needed to recognize the major issues of their time and to solve them as he felt his generation had done uh, during the uh, American Revolution. Well, listen, Andrew, it's a, where are you talking from? Where are you today? So I'm in the middle of Charlottesville, Virginia, and I haven't told you this, but uh, on Friday I'm going to Dubai to speak in the U.S. Pavilion at the World Expo, which is the largest event ever held in the Middle East. And I'm the theme of the pavilion this year of the State Department is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, and I'll be talking about Jefferson to people who've not heard about him, but I'll also be talking to Americans and young ambassadors who will want to me to explain how do you come to terms with the current criticism, the problems of Jefferson as a slave owner, and yet still recognize the real qualities of the man and the benefits that we still continue to derive. Thank you very much, Andrew O'Shaughnessy, for talking to us today. 
Andrew O'Shaughnessy is the author of the new and very fine book, The Illimitable Freedom of the Human Mind, Thomas Jefferson's Idea of a University. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Lewis. It's been a pleasure. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.